Hello and welcome into Emergency CF, news and information that shaped the Community Foundation world. I'm your host, Eric Ozempa. Well, today I'm very excited to have West Coast representation. Um, we are proud to have Katie Deering from the Oregon Community Foundation. Katie is the Community 101 Coordinator at the Oregon Community Foundation. And let me tell you a little bit more about Katie. Um, her background is in education. She has a master's in education from the University of Texas in Arlington with more than a decade spent teaching in public secondary schools in Texas and Oregon. And she found her way, obviously, to Oregon and the Oregon Community Foundation. Um, her teaching focused on social studies and the AVID program for potential first-generation college students. Her passion for working with youth and belief in the power of hands-on learning have made her role as Community 101 Coordinator a perfect platform for engaging youth Oregonians in philanthropic opportunities. Katie lives in North Portland with her husband and three children, in addition to navigating the joyful chaos that accompanies young children. Katie enjoys cross-stitching, curating charcuterie boards, and camping in her vintage Coleman pop-up. Katie, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I love the additional personal information that you present in your bio. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, thank you so much. And and um, curating charcuterie boards, is that just building a charcuterie board or is there something in particular about a charcuterie board that really attracts you? I just have to ask that about your bio here. Uh, it's the cheese. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I It's it's fun to kind of style them and, and shape um, and kind of paint with uh, snacks. And then at the end of it, you get cheese. So that's... Yeah. I'm right there with you. Cheese is a delightful thing. So um, I like to start out each guest too. Like, what are you listening to? Are you reading anything in particular, a podcast or watching something on TV? And this could be professional or personal. It really doesn't matter either way. I was thinking about this a little bit this morning. Uh, I think the, the I listen to lots of podcasts. It's a thing that I keep on kind of in the background while I'm doing all sorts of things. Uh, but I would say the podcast that I look forward to dropping every single week is Conan O'Brien needs a friend because uh, it's <laughs> he's hysterical and still a little bit cerebral and so I enjoy that podcast and then I would be remiss if I didn't uh, take the opportunity to plug uh, Ted Lasso which is a TV show on uh, I think it streams on Apple plus but it is indeed yeah yeah, so that good. one is truly a wonderful one. And I have to say, I will echo that and I'll be really excited when the third season comes out. So, and yeah. final season, but yeah. <laughs> so real quickly about, about Conan O'Brien, is there something in particular about the podcast? You, I think you said it was kind of uh, cerebral as well as entertaining. And have you liked Conan O'Brien for many years or was it something that was kind of brand new? Uh, I, where I've sort of encountered him, I, I've always appreciated, um, his sense of humor, but I kind of just stumbled upon the podcast. Now it's been a few years ago. Uh, but it's, it's funny. He also, I think just from being in show business for so many years, he always has incredible guests. So, um, uh, uh, it's great, you know, and everywhere from Michelle Obama to, uh, Sean Penn or comedians or uh, lots of different people. So oh, that's awesome. That's really cool. So I, I appreciate that. I, I actually am a huge podcast person, so I absolutely love to get new ideas. So thank you for sharing that. Um, so we're going to kind of pivot a little bit. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, your work at the Oregon Community Foundation and specifically around Community 101? Absolutely. So I'm the Community 101 coordinator. 
And Oregon Community Foundation is is massive, uh, one of the largest community foundations in the country, um, and I, I think maybe one of the only ones that's fully statewide. Um, and I am a small piece, relatively speaking, um, with my Community 101 program. And what we are essentially is a, a grant program for mostly high school students. We do have some middle school and elementary, um, and we offer grants uh, for $5,000 to classes along with the curriculum that, that we've created. And the curriculum sort of walks students through creating essentially their own miniature foundation with a $5,000 endowment. Um, and they, over the course of the school year, kind of evaluate community needs, develop a mission statement, research nonprofits in their communities, um, invite those nonprofits to apply for their grant, uh, review grant applications, and then uh, award those funds toward the end of each school year. Well, that's really cool. So how do they, I've got so many questions here, I'm sure listeners do too as well. So how do they evaluate community needs? Do they literally go out in the community or do they seek Oregon Community Foundation staff input. How does that how does that look? Uh, it can look a little bit different in every community 101 class. Um, the curriculum comes with kind of a community needs survey so that students can evaluate um, by as a class. They can um, and are encouraged to solicit opinions for their entire school, maybe submit the survey during like a homeroom period or something. Um, we also, uh, as a part of the curriculum, include opportunities for them to kind of reflect on root causes and impacts of some of these needs so that they can hone in on, you know, if the issue is um, bullying, right, what are the root causes of that that we can maybe look at and address within our community, um, and then what are the impacts of, of bullying, and then um, do they, as when you say it's a class, so are you physically in the school or is it via, is it virtual lessons? And I, obviously with the pandemic, I suspect a lot of it was virtual, but I was curious to know if there's a component in person or is it always been a kind of a virtual element? So every Community 101 class that participates has a teacher advisor who is with them. Most of the programs are built inside of a school uh, we have a few that are organizations or clubs outside of school time. Um, and so those advisors outside of school closures and pandemic are in person with the students. Um, and then when I am able, although I'm Portland based um, in, in a perfect world and in a post COVID world, I'm present uh, where I can be for visits with classroom funders or award ceremonies toward the end of the year. Okay, and how many participants or classes do you have right now currently? So this year we have uh, 42 Community 101 classes, and that's about 900 students. Statewide. Wow, that's amazing. And then um, I'm going to get technical here. So when you say a five thousand dollar endowment, are they they're obviously not allowed to spend the spend out the entire five thousand? Is the way I understand that? Is that correct, or am I? No, they do. They spend out the. In endowment it was maybe not the right choice, but that's their that's the amount of money that they're granted each year to spend out. And then oh, okay. uh, schools are encouraged to fundraise to add to that total. And there's materials inside of our curriculum that kind of walk them through that. Um, 
But of course, you know, in the the COVID world of the last few years, the fundraising opportunities have been challenging for schools because it's usually something like uh, bake sales or car washes. And uh, we're returning to that kind of, you know, post-COVID normal. But uh, but anyway, yes. So um, every school has $5,000. Uh, some of them are able to fundraise more to add to that total. And then are like parents involved at all? Or is it truly student driven, teacher driven in the school or are parents involved somehow and in maybe raising money or other things like that? There may be some incident instances where parents are involved, but for the most part, I mean, everything is student driven. Um, the teachers are just, I mean, they're to be there, but uh, the way that the materials are designed, uh, students are really set up to drive the process from beginning to end, including communicating with nonprofits, reaching out to me, communicating with funders, organizing everything. And now we used to have a, there is a private foundation that used to do a program, not nearly the scope of what you're describing. So can you tell me what makes, or tell our listeners, what makes Community 101 unique? Is there a particular facet you think that makes it unique? Or is there something that, um, and again, I'm not, I just so you know, I'm peace and love. I'm not trying to show, throw shade at you and just say, oh my gosh, we've heard this before. But nobody's heard, it, at least I haven't heard it, the scope um, that you're all doing it with 900 students of 42 schools or classes, that is phenomenal. So again, I'm going to back that up just a little bit. I have heard of youth granting before, but I'm just curious to know if there's another unique aspect to it. I think one of the things that makes us unique is exactly what you said, um, that we have a a pretty significant scale. Um, We are spread to all four corners of the state. Um, another thing that separates us uh, and separates the Community 101 program from some of the other um, youth philanthropy programs that are out there is that uh, I do a lot of work to match regional funders with uh, regional programs. So um, most of our funding for C101 classrooms uh, comes from direct donors and not you know, bulk discretionary funding. Um, so it really gives in a lot of cases, kind of an extra opportunity for classrooms to connect with funders inside of their communities. Well, that's, that's excellent too. That's great. What a great, um, advantage those, those students have too. And then I think the other aspect too, is most of the programs that I have been familiar with were mostly surface level sense of like, Hey, giving back kind of personal responsibility, sharing, that sort of thing. But you're go, you all go deeper. I mean, you're talking about critical thinking and other values, if you will. And so can you describe like how, you know, how is the, maybe the critical thinking component accentuated or how does that arrive at, or how do you come about that? I'm curious. I, you mean how the students kind of go? Yeah, exactly. Like, how is that? Is there a particular, is there a particular lesson about like kind of teaching critical thinking or anything like that? Or is it just organic? Um, That's where I guess I'd probably be more spot on if you don't mind. Sure. I I think it's some of both. Uh, We have, I I keep referring to this mysterious curriculum. We have a, a curriculum that's publicly available through our website that. Uh, walks students through every step, but I also really work with the teacher advisors and the students to encourage them to to take some of that latitude and 
uh, go to a kind of a more organic process as that makes sense for them. Um, that said, some of the things that um, the materials that I've created and, and provide for them as far as kind of nurturing that critical thinking process are, uh, I mean, charts to kind of talk about, like I, I referenced earlier, um, if you've identified kind of a community need, really looking at what are the root causes of that and then what are the impacts and how can we address that um, in creating mission statements. I have a lot of structures to make sure that, you know, checklists of, of what should be included and how to be clear. Um, I would say some of the most complex thinking and growth opportunities for students in the process are related to reviewing applications um, and really looking at your, what nonprofits are asking for and how, how do you decide when you have $12,000 worth of asks and $5,000 to offer, um, how do you decide what the best way to do um, to, to distribute funds is? And then how do you reach consensus as a group? Because some of our classes have 15 students, but some have 30, uh, and that can be really complex. Yeah, that's a heavy lift. And so I suspect that the, like most grants committees or volunteer groups and that sort of thing, the, the issue of like kind of doing larger grants to fewer organizations or spreading it out probably comes up. And does that come up? And how do you kind of, does the, how does the group, how have you seen the conversations go along those ways? Uh, it really varies widely from program to program. Uh, we do offer full discretion to students. So the, the classes are really um, permitted to decide how the funding goes. Um, outright. Uh, the only rules that we have are, of course, that the, the grants must be given to uh, 501c3s um, and that they they can't be um, exclusionary in any way, um, no political funding or things like that. But uh, otherwise, I mean, every year I see classes who will give $5,000 to a perfect match for their mission and classes who will give $500 to 10 nonprofits because they're trying to spread things kind of um, out and support multiple causes. It really just depends, but every class and, kind of comes up with something different. And does every class, is there a, is there a, do they all have applications that need to be completed or is it come at it more of like they, they're going to go explore and find community organizations or nonprofits, 501c3s they want to support, or is it a combination of both? I mean, is there a formal grant process, I guess is, is probably the question. Typically, there's a formal grant process. So there's uh, an application that we provide to students that they can um, send out when they invite nonprofits to participate, um, and then they can kind of move from there. Um, in COVID, uh, because schools shut down just right about the time that, so in 2020, um, schools shut down right about the time that they would be making these decisions. Um, and so we practiced uh, flexibility and responsiveness, just like any uh, philanthropic organization in the country in April of 2020, and allowed classes to revisit their mission and kind of pivot their funding um, as an example, one of our classes had this um, incredible mission about um, engaging women in STEM, which is obviously important and so thoughtful. And then they said, there are people who are 
you know, starving and in real danger here. And in light of that, we feel like we need to shift and address um, hunger in the refugee community. And so they kind of created their own um, idea specifically for um, food boxes and provisions for families on a halal diet um, in the refugee community. Yeah. Um, and made this proposal and uh, fully funded it for themselves and supported families uh, through the month of Ramadan. Um, and it was just this total pivot, but such a beautiful example of how um, formal processes don't always work. Um, and that when we're working in philanthropy, uh, we really do need to be uh, responsive and uh, willing to pivot. Well, and kudos to the Oregon Community Foundation for allowing that pivot rather than just kind of digging in and saying, no, 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 this is the, these are the guidelines. This is what you have to do. And I, I really will commend you for making that pivot. That's awesome. Um, so what has surprised you about the program? Have there been any surprises or maybe unexpected challenges along the way that you'd like to share? <laughs> um, the thing that surprised me, and I, I tell the students this all the time, that before I was a Community 101 coordinator, I was a Community, one, community 101 teacher advisor. So I, I uh, led my own class um, at the high school that I taught at. And that whole time, I had this idea that com, com, we are so lucky to have Community 101. What a sweet deal for my students to practice these 21st century skills and evaluate applications and engage with the community. This is so great for us. Um, and what has surprised me as the Community 101 coordinator um, is that Community 101 is a great deal for OCF um, because we are we're engaging communities. Uh, we really have our finger on the pulse of future philanthropists and what, what is important to youth across Oregon and um, it's such a joy for our OCF staff and donors and other volunteers to see the, the passion that students have. So I tell them, you know, I tell my students, Community 101 seems like a really great deal for you, but really it's also a great deal for us uh, to get to see what you're doing too. Yeah, and I, I always like to say when you work with youth, you actually become more optimistic about the future. At least I do. I think it's really been, it really is an exciting time in some ways. I mean, very challenging, but I also am very optimistic about the, the next generation. So I imagine that they also uh, give your donors and staff and other people hope too as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, as far as challenges, I would say I... Uh, joined OCF and took over as Community 101 coordinator in uh, January of 2020. Uh, So it was a (laughs) wild ride, but we really, I mean, I I was so fortunate that OCF at large and as an organization really values serving the community and uh, was really supportive of the flexibility that we were able to offer to students and Uh, the feedback that I received kind of as we went through, I mean, taking our curriculum fully online and kind of navigating um, uncertainty on a week by week basis through most of 2020. um, The feedback that I got was that it really gave students something positive to channel their energy into when there was just so much fear and uncertainty and so much stuff to be sad about. Uh, it gave them a way to feel like they had some control uh, to do good. So that was 
a challenge that ended up really being something that I look back on fondly. Well, and plus you were dealing with your own personal children and COVID and, you know, you're, you're like a hero of mine. I mean, that's amazing. Any parent that was dealing with children during COVID, I mean, that that's heroic work. So thank you. Well, thank you. Um, so we're, we're into shameless plugs on the podcast. So how can people find out more about the program if they are interested? Uh, all of our materials are on our website, which is oregoncf.org slash c101 okay and there's the the curriculum to peruse um if anybody is interested in reviewing or borrowing i have some great expansion materials on um civil discourse and uh critical uh evaluation and how do you know what you're reading is true and um, about 40% of our the mission statements that students submit are related to mental health in some capacity. So I have some mental health resources uh, because that obviously resonates with our youth in Oregon and I would imagine uh, nationwide. Uh, but yeah, all of the materials are there. And then of course, uh, my contact information is as well. And I'm always happy to, to chat C101 with anybody. Fantastic, Katie. I thank you so much for joining us today and giving us an overview of the Community 101 program. It sounds like it's it's going to gangbusters, and I commend you for not only joining in January of 2020, but actually uh, having so much success, too, during the pandemic. So we wish you well, and thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been uh, fun to talk about. Awesome. All right. Uh, that was Katie Deering over at the Oregon Community Foundation. Again, you can reach out to her uh, if you're interested or look at their website at oregoncf.org and uh, find out more information about the Community 101 program. I'll have uh, information on the show notes, too, as well about that. Uh, let's turn on to the news quickfire. So we've got some conferences and such that are coming up. So Growth in the Rural Ozarks Leadership Conference is coming up in May. Very small conference, but I um, I shouldn't say that. I My instinct probably tells me a small conference, but May 5th, 2022, sorry, 2022 in Buffalo, Missouri. So it's May 5th. And if you're interested, this is actually done by the Community Foundation of the Ozarks. And what I find particularly fascinating and really cool about this is that they have some really great options for the second day of fun or an optional day of fun. So you can go fly fishing. You can go to an Amish Mennonite culture community. Um, it, it sounds like a great time. So not only are you engaging and networking with people in rural philanthropy, but you're also doing some really cool activities too as well. And you can get more information at the Community Foundation of the Ozarks again, May 5th, 2022. Uh, let's see, webinars. Uh, Trust-Based Philanthropy Project is doing a Trust-Based Philanthropy 4D webinar series. This is session four, Cultivating Trust-Based Leadership. So they've done three other ones, and I suspect that if you reach out to them, you might get more information about the, the prior three. This is Thursday, May 5th, 2022, at 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m., and that is Eastern Time. Um, this, is a, this is the final session of a four-part webinar series hosted in partnership with the Environmental Grantmakers Association, Blue Sky Funders Forum, and Sustainable Agricultural and Food Systems Funders. So in essence, trust-based philanthropy is more successful when there is buy-in and modeling from leadership. In trust-based context, leaders strive to be collaborative 
and facilitative, focused on lifting up the whole team and building trust internally rather than consolidating power and influence at the trustee level. So join them Thursday, May 5th, uh, 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. You can get more information at trustbasedphilanthropy.org. And then another one, another webinar I want to mention is Building Ties with DAF Donors, Where to Start. And this is sponsored by the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Giving to a donor advised fund is surging despite the crisis of the past two years, and so are sums flowing to nonprofits. Grants to charities from the 10 largest DAF sponsors totaled $22.4 billion in 2020. That's roughly double the amount of the 10 biggest foundations that gave in the same year. Yet billions more remain in DAFs waiting to be funneled to nonprofits. Um, how can your organization find and build ties with donors who give through DAFs? The most interesting part of this is that there are there's actually an executive at a community foundation that sponsors DAFs and the head of a philanthropic gifts at a nonprofit that excels in raising money. These two individuals will be part of this webinar. The, the webinar is Thursday, April 28th at 2 p.m. Eastern. Again, building ties with DAF donors and where to start. Um, you can register at store.philanthropy.com and get their early board bird rate before it expires. It looks like it's $69. And then, of course, the session includes live captioning and ASL interpretation. And then, of course, they're asking you if you need other accommodations, and they're happy to oblige. Um, finally, the CEO Net Council on Foundations virtual roundtable. I mentioned this last week, but again, I think it it's a subject that really is interesting for a lot of people, which is cryptocurrency. This is May 24th, 2022, 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern, and that is Cryptocurrency and Your Community Foundation. So that is, uh, again, something that's very timely. And again, this is for CEOs, as I understand correctly, um, only. So, But you can find more information at the Council on Foundations or probably more likely at the CEO Net website. Um, you can go to ceonet.org and find out more information. Again, May 24, 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern. So I just want to say thanks so much to Katie Deering for joining me again and for being on the show. And again, uh, go to emergentcf.com to find more information about events and other topics. And if you like what you hear, subscribe. And certainly reach out to us at any time. Let us know what you think of the program, emergentcf at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Hallelujah.